This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Good evening, everyone. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the executive director here at Birch Aquarium at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego. I'd like to welcome you all to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Speaker Series. This evening, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Stuart Sandin. Born in Los Angeles, California, Stuart received his BS in Ecology, Behavior, and Evolution from UC San Diego and a PhD in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology from Princeton University. He was a lecturer and a research associate at Princeton before joining Scripps. Here at Scripps, Stuart is a professor in the Marine Biology Research Division and also the Oliver Chair in the Marine Biodiversity and Conservation. Stuart also serves as the director of Scripps Center for Marine Biodiversity and Conservation. His research focuses on community ecology that is investigating how organisms interact in complex marine communities. The majority of his work is conducted in tropical and coral reef ecosystems of the Pacific and Caribbean, where he's coordinated multiple ship and land-based expeditions to the remote islands of the Central and South Pacific Ocean. His work in the Pacific has led to development of the 100 Island Challenge Research Campaign, a project in which he and his team use technology to create large area imaging of reefs, to visualize them in three dimensions, and to provide observations for how coral reefs are faring across the globe. So please join me in welcoming Stuart for his talk entitled, The Power of Adaptation in Ocean Ecosystems. Thank you, everyone. When, when people ask me, what's my favorite island, I can never fully commit. Though I know that Kingman Reef in the tropical Central Pacific is a top contender for the title. It was over 15 years ago when I first visited Kingman Reef. Our team from Scripps Institution of Oceanography was there to get an ecological snapshot of an undisturbed coral reef and the ecosystem did not disappoint. When we splashed into the warm waters, we were met by dozens of gray reef sharks and curious red snappers. The bottom was covered by thick expanses of live coral and pink algae cementing the reef together. The clear ocean surrounded us with a feeling of life and vibrance. And my view of coral reefs and their potential to thrive was changed forever. These visions of underwater vibrance, however, are contrasted by the unassuming topside view as we approach the island. Like many coral atolls and reefs, Kingman has only the smallest ridges of emergent land. So as we steamed toward the island, it was unclear where the ocean ended and the reef began. It was only once we were within a few hundred meters that we could see the color of the ocean change indicating that the reef was near. Even with GPS and modern navigational data, I feared that the reef might find the bottom of the ship before we found it. <laughs> that fear was not unique to our ship's crew, but has existed since the earliest days of Western navigation. European explorers, traders, and military who began infiltrating the tropical oceans of the world in the 16th and 17th centuries expressed a deathly aversion to coral reefs. Coral reefs, these seafarers knew, 
lurk just below the surface of the ocean, ready to claw the hulls of ships and steal the souls of seafarers. Quarries created atolls in the middle of the ocean, and they also fouled tropical bays and passages. These seamen never knew where to expect a coral reef to emerge. And who is the culprit? The corals themselves. These corals were plants or animals. The taxonomists at the time didn't know. But there was agreement that they grew swiftly. Corals were the weeds of the tropical seas. And no thought was given to dredging these beasts to clear seaways. The corals would always grow back. Today, however, the narrative has shifted. No longer do we worry about corals growing too much. Instead, we worry about the corals dying. Corals, now known to be animals living in symbiosis with algae and other organisms, are listed among the most threatened group of organisms on the planet. In the mid-20th century, we worried about breaking the fragile skeletons by ship grounding, trampling, and the occasional nuclear test. By the end of the century, we worried about pollution and overfishing, with coastal development and human population growing disproportionately along the tropical coastlines. Now we have our sights trained on the existential threat posed by climate change. Heating tropical waters beyond the temperature where corals can persist. Without all hands on deck, we will be the last generation to ever see a coral reef. I didn't think much about coral reefs when I was a kid. Growing up in a valley in Los Angeles, my childhood was consumed by sports and smog. The thought about the plant, I thought about the plants and animals of the planet, but beyond the bugs in yards and parks, my major exposure to the world's wildlife was found in magazines. Audubon, Cousteau, and some glimpses at my dad's magazines, National Geographic. <laughs> the diversity of species and ecosystems was mind-boggling, and each article was like a research expedition. But for every introduction to a species, there was an equal and opposite dose of fear. Stories of discovery ended with an accounting of habitat loss, and tales of beautiful species concluded with the imminence of extinction. There was an emotional toll for me in these stories. I lamented that the growing human population had a singular and negative impact on the wildlife of the planet. With this growing eco-anxiety, I turned introspective as I continued through school. When I took job placement exams, the counselors would recommend positions like park ranger or forester. But I had spent my life reading about rangers and foresters losing battles, one by one, the battles that I hoped would save the natural world around us. At the same time, I watched engineers building elaborate products of human creativity, like satellites that could learn about distant galaxies, and medical professionals solving the most complex of health issues. What would happen, I thought, if I combined the applied mathematics of engineering with the wildlife challenges of a park ranger? Well, today, I lead the 100 Island Challenge, a research campaign following the long tradition of global research here at Scripps Oceanography. Our goal is to learn what makes one coral reef look different and work differently than another. 
With the Hunter Island Challenge, we are systematically conducting ecological surveys that capture a snapshot of the fishes and the corals living on more than 100 islands using the natural experiment that is the variability of coral reefs worldwide. Some islands support large human populations, and some are little inhabited. Some islands have rich waters, and others are nutrient deserts. And some islands are volcanic, while others, as we know, barely break the surface of the sea. We work in 17 countries, spanning the tropical waters of the Pacific, Caribbean, and Indian Oceans. And we've been using research tools that provide scientific insights for today, as well as archival data for tomorrow. New technology is helping us to share much of what we see, not the least being the use of large area imaging, sometimes referred to as photomosaics. In a process analogous to how we create satellite views of cities and forests, we can collect images of thousands of corals living in one location and create a high-resolution composite view of that reef. And because we've entered into the era of big data, in which computers and storage allow us to leap from megabytes to petabytes, we can visualize these reefs in three dimensions without ever getting wet. The data collected from this global gradient have allowed us to explore fundamental hypotheses in marine ecology, as well as to provide some observations and generalities of how coral reefs are faring as we enter the 2020s. At first pass, the data collected support a common theme in natural resource monitoring. The structure and functioning of coral reefs change when assaulted by intensive extraction, pollution, or extreme uh, ocean events linked with climate change. But through these insights come more and more reports of quote-unquote special reefs with corals that are growing, and often growing fast, despite the list of modern challenges. On Curaçao, in the southern Caribbean, one section of coastline has been getting bathed in the outflow waters from the energy and water desalinization cogeneration facility for the past 60 years. My colleague, Dr. Mark Vermey, has been watching this reef build over the last 20 years. In these hot and salty waters lives one of the most extensive populations of the boulder coral, Copophilia. Classical thinking would suggest that all the corals would be dead, but a new reef has emerged in our lifetimes. Analogous stories of coral reefs thriving in extreme conditions can be found across the globe. From the outflow waters of a nuclear power plant in southern Taiwan to the smoldering trash island of the Maldives. These reefs are special because they deviate from expectation, namely that corals should not thrive in hot waters. The change in water temperature linked with these locations in principle, should be followed by the death of corals. How is it possible that these reefs rise through such anthropogenic insults? We can look to time series data of coral communities for more insights. In the, in the Phoenix Islands, lying along the equator in the Western Pacific, we've been tracking how a, a coral reef responds to changes in temperatures. At the turn of the millennium, the splendid coral reefs on the remote parts of the Republic of Kiribati received a global insult, the El Nino event of 2001 and 2002. The ocean temperature rose 
staying unusually warm for almost a year straight. And the corals bleached, and the corals died. When I first visited in 2008, the reef that graced the, the pages of National Geographic because of its beauty looked instead like a wasteland. However, after about a decade, we watched the reefs regrow. New corals replaced the old, and a reef reemerged. But the ocean keeps warming, and another marine heat wave hit in 2015-16, with temperatures more extreme than those in 2001. However, this time, the corals did not die in mass. Despite some mortality, the coral colonies soldiered through the warmth. It looked like the corals that repopulated after the first big event were different than those that faced the second event. Are we seeing evidence of adaptation to a, cl to a changing climate? These anecdotes of shifts in the workings of corals, especially in response to a changing climate, are repeated across many of the hundred islands. The critical question arises, if warmer conditions are detrimental to corals, how can repeated events of warm water lead to corals growing? This is what we aim to find out. To get started, though, let's look for some background in our knowledge of the biology of corals. Reef-building corals are animals that form colonies that are familiar to most of us. But the animal is not alone. We should think of reef-building corals as animals with a bunch of symbiotic friends. They're algae, fungi, bacteria, and viruses that live in and around every colony. Among the most famous of these coral friends are the symbiotic algae that live within the cells of the coral animal. These algae provide most of the energy for the coral colony, and it's precisely this symbiosis that has allowed corals to grow so prodigiously in even the most nutrient-poor tropical waters of the world. However, the symbiosis is tuned to environmental conditions. And under stressful conditions, especially when it gets anomalously warm, the relationship breaks down and the alga leaves. With the photosynthetic pigments from the algae gone, the coral animal is left looking transparent. And what once was a brown or green or reddish coral colony now becomes bright white. You just see the limestone skeleton underneath the coral colony. This is coral bleaching. Coral bleaching is being documented from many places across the globe. Perhaps most famously, we've watched the massive extents of the Great Barrier Reef in Australia being devastated by high temperatures, bright light, and widespread coral bleaching. The emotional impact of these visuals cannot be overstated. When I think about coral bleaching, however, I'm struck by the disconnect between some of these observations that we've shared and those from our colleagues worldwide. The narrative that's cast in the media about coral bleaching ends with the death of the colony, the death of an area, or the death of a reef there's little discussion of what comes next. Our observations conducted through the Hunter Island Challenge and complementary efforts by colleagues worldwide are starting to see an alternate reality. The conventional view of many ecological models is the idea of stationarity. 
This is a simplifying assumption that the environment and the way that an organism faces the environment will remain the same through time. Well, we know that the environment is not stationary. What if the organisms themselves also change? What if the corals that repopulated the Phoenix Islands are not different species, but a recovering abundance of a thermally adapted population of the same species? What if we're watching the workings of the corals themselves shifting through time, leveraging the levers of adaptation? Understanding the portfolio of biological mechanisms for adaptation in corals and their symbionts is prerequisite for building impactful interventions. Corals can adapt to changing conditions through a number of mechanisms, through shifts in the type of symbiotic algae, alterations of the microbial layer, or shifts in the expression of the genetic code of the animal itself. While the biological potential of these mechanisms has been documented in laboratory studies, we have no idea whether the changes are realized in nature. The Hunter Island Challenge offers us a glimpse that corals appear not to be stationary, but just what levers of adaptation are being used. While our efforts to date have elucidated what makes one coral reef look different than another, to study adaptation, we must consider what makes one coral colony work differently than another. We aim to unpack these fundamental ecological processes by leveraging biological da big data, helping to make climate adaptation for coral reefs a reality. Linking the tools of ocean observation with the modern uh, techniques of genetic sequencing and data analysis, we can start to look not just at trends in how many corals live, but instead the intricate details of which corals survive and how they did it. We can document patterns of symbiosis, ecological change, and evolution, each the building blocks of biological adaptation across the world's coral communities. And our team at Scripps Oceanography is leading this global effort with our internal facilities across UC San Diego and through partnerships worldwide. We're in the midst of the grandest experiment of environmental change that modern humanity has ever seen. We reach this time in the era of big data, having the ability to record, archive, and explore previously unfathomable volumes of information. If we don't capitalize on this natural experiment, we'll miss an opportunity that won't just come once in a lifetime, it hopefully will only happen once in the course of humanity. The opportunity and the responsibility is upon us to learn how species and systems are adapting to the changes around them. Adaptation is happening within corals and across entire coral reef systems. And these adaptations will spread. And our team is readying to decode nature's solutions and help them to spread faster. We aim to use our relationships with scientists resource managers and leadership worldwide to spread these solutions that favor the persistence of corals. Only nature can tell us how it'll face the future. And for us to accelerate the path to recovery, we need to offer the nudges that most efficiently move reefs along a path of resilience.
We need to listen to coral reefs as they tell us strategies that will navigate the challenges ahead. Thank you. So I mentioned the power of, of digital photography or these digital twins. Uh, and before we get into discussion, uh, I want to take you on a tour of some of our 100 islands, a virtual tour. Before I do that, I want to, I want to note that this work uh, is a product of a wonderful team of students, staff, and colleagues at Scripps and UC San Diego. We're fortunate to have Clinton Edwards back here who's going to be driving us around some of these models. And thank you for uh, helping us through the big data here today, Clint. Clint received his, his bachelor's and master's degree here at UCSD, and he's, he's currently finishing his PhD at Scripps Oceanography. I should also point out I want to thank him particularly because he's also leaving his eight-month-old at home right now with his wife, don't worry, uh, to, to participate with us. So thank you, Clint, for being here. So we have an opportunity to visit the world's coral reefs. And if we, if we can right now, Clint, let's take this tour. We've assembled a collection of videos from a number of these islands that span multiple ocean basins. I mentioned the use of large area imaging or photogrammetric products or photo mosaics. But what you'll see here is that we're actually looking at a digital twin, a virtual reality view of a coral reef. In this case, we're, we're taking a tour of the Solomon Islands in the, in the Southwest Pacific, a place that many people don't get the opportunity to get to, but we can learn from it. We can take a tour around multiple locations simply by collecting imagery, putting that imagery together, and then serving it so that we can explore parts of, say, Kaholave, which is an island that's, uh, that's inaccessible to most people, and we can note how much coral lives there. We can take tours to investigate how much coral, what type of coral, and to start learning the stories that these corals have to tell. Through time series, in this case, with two different time points of the same location in, in Christmas Island in the Republic of Kiribati, we can see some of those damaging effects that can happen by hot water events. In this case, amplified by a big storm that led to big waves that, that killed this reef. You're looking at actually a four-dimensional view of a reef, three dimensions in multiple points in time. We have an ability to learn and to, to uh, document what's leading to these changes and what are some, some of those uh, levers that we do have that influence the reef changing in different directions. The island of Lanai here in, in Maui Nui, central uh, Hawaiian islands. This is right next to an extensive uh, uh, agri uh, defunct uh, agricultural area with a fair amount of, uh, of a long history of sedimentation reaching this reef. But this reef, if I just showed it to you, would you say it was healthy or not? I'm pretty happy to see that one. We can look for some of these monsters that exist. These corals, that in this case, on the island of Pohnpei in the Federated States of Micronesia. It's about uh, two to three meters across. This coral, probably 100 years old. We know that this coral has experienced a lot of change, historically 
and locally. The main shipping channel goes right overhead of that colony. And it's there and it's fighting. We can get more dramatic if we really like these massive corals and explore some of the islands of the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas. Here we're in Alamagan. This colony is about five to six meters across and probably has been uh, existent on this planet for over 500 years. The stories that coral could tell and the change that that coral has experienced to me is mind-blowing. The question now gets us to how do we document what's changing today? We can learn through deep time or deeper time of hundreds of years by looking at some of these large corals, but we know in the, in the short term we're seeing patterns of loss. If you look at time series here from Mog in the Northern Marianas, we see places that suffered that same hot water event of 2015-16, and we watch the coral going from live to dead. It's not the way that one of those massive corals is supposed to look. And we know some of the factors, and we know in actually pretty good detail the characteristics that lead to death. The question gets to, what are the, what's the portfolio of mechanisms? This is from Ha'apai in Tonga. This reef was there a few years ago, and our team just went back, and this was one of the casualties of that giant volcanically-induced tsunami that, that hit the kingdom of Tonga uh, a year ago. Interesting enough, rounding the corner from this location, the reefs were, were thriving. Thriving because of in, uh, strong local management and an ethos within the Kingdom of Tonga for marine stewardship and marine management. But we can learn a lot more about these patterns of growth that sometimes are harder to document when you watch without digital accompaniments. This reef here on Morea in French Polynesia had no coral in it approximately six years before this imagery was taken. All of this grew back in the period of less than a decade. And how does it grow back? Well, a lesson from Ant Atoll in uh, the Federated States of Micronesia can tell us. We can watch multiple time series. We're seeing before and after of coral recruitment. Babies showing up landing on the bottom and growing. So what looks like a pink encrusted landscape gets new corals that grow on top of it. If you missed the first one, check this one out. All of that is new coral growth over a period of just a couple years. There are many mechanisms by which corals can grow and this time series of, of uh, increase is something that is ubiquitous. It's just been something out of our, uh, out of our sight. We've had, a, we've had a reporting bias when it comes to many underwater ecosystems. We've had a reporting bias in that it's easy to jump in the water in one location, see it looking nice, and going back two years later and noticing that it's all dead. But when was the last time you watched and noted a tree growing this much? So much easier to tell a story of clear-cutting. How do we document this very slow, systematic growth? We've got a little bit more that we want to share with you in a minute, but, uh, but Cheryl, why don't we jump into a couple questions here? Thank you. 
This is great. Um, how do you incorporate local communities in this and you know their knowledge? Because you mentioned the Tonga, but I know that there are other uh, fishing communities in the South Pacific, well, even in East, off of East Africa, yeah. that have you know their ways. But um, I just wanted to know how they get into the research. Yeah, thank you very much for the question. Uh, in in the in all of our work. We have a, a global constituents, a constituency that, that has a vested interest in the um, viability and perpetuity of coral reefs. And nobody as much as, as the uh, local populations of hundreds of millions of people who depend upon coral reefs for their livelihood, be it for food, for uh, shoreline protection, and for other forms of, of economic well-being. Uh, there is a global community of coral reef stewards that exists globally. And I don't care if you're, uh, what income level you're talking of a nation, we have uh, individuals who are dedicated to the importance of it. Starting from the uh, uh, fair amount of indigenous uh, history and uh, origin myths from across the Pacific that are all founded on this idea that the coral polyp is the beginning, is the origin of existence. We've had this unique opportunity to be able to spend time working with a lot of these colleagues. It, it all starts with uh, um, simple discussions. We, uh, for every location where we work, it begins with phone calls and emails to connect with people who are the coral reef stewards, uh, expressing our, our intention and expressing our, our interest in collaboration. We've had a wonderful experience every time going with an immediate return ticket in our pocket in case we're asked to leave. Yeah. Not yet. <laughs> and, and then having some sincere conversations about where, where is there an opportunity for collaboration, where, where's the most, uh, where are the opportunities for learning. There's a lot of knowledge out there. There's also a lot of lack of capacity, you know, and that's financial capacity, not human capacity. What we've found to be a wonderful opportunity is to build partnerships, to build trust, and to build collaborations with our partners worldwide to try to learn together. One of the things that's amplified it, and one of the things I think Clinton and I will agree on uh, when it comes to this project, the 100 Island Challenge, that surprised us the most, was the importance and the resonance of the, the large area imaging. Why was that? It, with a lot of our partners, and especially the, uh, the island communities, there's an interest in storytelling. And discussion using graphs, figures, pie tables, <laughs> convoluted, multidimensional models, <laughs> doesn't carry as well as a, as a sincere story about what's happening underwater. The imagery provides access to this. In fact, um, uh, in one conversation I was having with uh, the governor of Peleliu State in Palau, uh, uh, Temi Shul, uh, we had laid out uh, one of, uh, a printed out version of one of these mosaics, and he told me this anecdote. He said, Stuart, I'm a fisherman. I've been a fisherman my whole life. The fish, they can tell us how they're doing, because if I go fishing somewhere and there are fewer fish, I know that we have to fish somewhere else. And if the fish are big and strong, we know that we're, we're managing it well. But the reef, the reef doesn't have a voice. He said, this, this gives the reef a voice. We've been learning so much in terms of storytelling, and especially image-based storytelling from our colleagues worldwide. It's been one of the most fascinating and, and uh, exciting parts of this entire project.
Hi. Uh, the photos are fascinating, uh, but where do these, I guess, new seeds to reseed the dead reef come from? Are they evolving on site? Are they drifting in from hundreds of miles away, or where do they come from? Yeah, that's a great question. And Clint, if you can find that video with or find some uh, juvenile corals, this would be a fun uh, addition. So corals, like uh, most marine organisms, have this uh, so-called biphasic life history where they have a sedentary period and then they have a planktonic period where they spawn, they go away. Some corals brood. They actually take a sperm and egg within one coral polyp and then raise it to something that's competent. Competent for them is a little rice grain that, that swims around. And then it, uh, it lands back on the bottom of the ocean. Uh, so sexual reproduction is a big part of coral, uh, of coral reproduction, where you do have eggs and sperm. Some of these wonderful mass coral spawning events are, are one of the most beautiful things, timing the whole thing. Those babies are formed in the water column. They float around for a while, and then they'll recruit back. In some cases, the numbers of, of coral uh, um, planulae, of coral settlers, of the, the smallest babies, those numbers are dropping. And the Caribbean is actually suffering a bit of a, um, uh, a, a dramatic decrease of about 20-fold in terms of the number of coral babies settling on the bottom. That's disconcerting for the next generation. But it's not the only form of recruitment that happens or arrival of the next generation. We can see here that some of these corals can form through breakage and continued growth. One reason, me, is uh, who historically studied fish and even birds before that, kind of unitary organisms, ones that have respectable life, life histories, which is we grow up and we die, right? <laughs> uh, corals are different than that. They, they can grow up and they can break in half, and then there could be two of them because they're just a bunch of animals next to each other. This colonial lifestyle uh, gives them an opportunity to reproduce in a second way, a second way asexually. So rather than depending upon egg and sperm, they can just fragment, and those fragments can create new, new babies. Uh, they can also die and partially survive in different locations, making additional colonies. So there's a, a number of ways that coral reproduction happens. The, the most, a very important part, and one that increases genetic diversity, etc., is the sexual reproduction. And sexual reproduction still exists, and coral spawning events are happening. And there's a big campaign to try to maximize the importance and the success of those coral, ba those coral babies, and to even try to manage and, and uh, amplify it through uh, rearing techniques. But there's a whole host of mechanisms of asexual reproduction that are contributing to this next generation of corals. So my question is, you mentioned earlier how they would bleach and die in a first heat wave, then in the next heat wave, which was significantly or at least noticeably stronger, they somehow soldiered through. And I've heard in many of my classes that adaptation and evolution can take hundreds of thousands of years sometimes. So is there any way we know like how they are adapting so quickly to the rapidly changing environment? Incredibly exciting question right there. Uh, Clinton, if, if we can see the uh, FR39 or 38 uh, time series, that would be a nice accompaniment here. 
how, how is it happening so rapidly? So in addition to the, so let, let me start with, with some of the, the potential mechanisms. Uh, adaptation, and especially evolution, can, uh, is oftentimes thought to be much slower than ecological processes, especially when we go for classical genetic-based uh, um, evolutionary processes. You have to get a mutation. It has to be successful. The population has to raise up. It's typically thought of in the, in the context of sexually reproductive reproducing unitary organisms. Well, corals are special. They've got a lot of different ways that they're facing the environment. And and taking a second to think about the life of a coral helps us to understand a bit more of what's happening. Corals are colonial. Corals have a a whole um, collection of symbionts. We can refer to them as a holobiont because they're more importantly this aggregation or amalgamation of multiple species. The microbes living on top of them are as important or more important than the microbes we have living in our stomach. And we know that our microbiome is hugely important for helping us to at least acclimate to different environmental conditions. So the question of adaptation here gets to the different forms of adaptation, if we're going to use that word in a broad definition, that includes acclimation, that includes different short-term and long-term responses. Some of the mechanisms that are possible for corals to face tomorrow looking different can actually occur within generation. What I mean by that is that the, uh, one of the reasons that corals bleach may be that the symbiont, the symbiotic algae, finds the environment to, to be too hot. It's possible for the animal to expel the alga or the alga to just up and leave and to be bleached. But then it can grab another alga and, and persist. There have been a number of studies that have shown that what they call symbiont shuffling, where that symbiont changes after a thermal event, a hot water event, to a more thermally adapted type of algae living inside of it. It's possible that the microbes can change a little bit. And there are even some very exciting new results right now that are showing that corals, because they have this colonial growth that they can grow and reproduce, uh, all of that's happening asexually, making the little coral polyp next to the, uh, an adjacent polyp. All that's through budding that's all asexual. Sometimes mutations happen during that. And a successful mutation can get passed on. Really fascinating, really new work. But if we go back to our Biology 101, that, that uh, budding happens mitotically, which happens through a direct replication of the DNA that's there. But then when you go to coral reproduction through sexual means, that's meiosis, where you split into a haploid, you try to make an egg and a sperm, and that comes together. The mitotically created mutations have been found to be passed on meiotically. That means within generation evolution to local environmental conditions. Very new, very exciting stuff. a great colleague, Ileana Bonds, who uh, just left Penn, uh, Penn State, has been doing some of this work. It just is fascinating. Um, there are a lot of mechanisms. Your question about the pace is a huge one. I want to make sure that this point is not lost. If climate change models continue at the pace of business as usual or worse, where we release that much more CO2, where the temperature gets that much warmer, and the frequency of intense events gets that much more frequent, I don't think that mechanisms of adaptation will catch up. But if we start to bend the curve on climate change, 
we have some very fascinating, very exciting potential for this myriad collection of adaptation mechanisms to provide us some leverage, to provide us some time for the corals to face the future looking slightly different. It's really a matter of rates, so your question is spot on. Are the rates enough to keep up? My point is, if we don't do anything about protecting the corals today through local management, then we'll have nothing when the climate change gets fixed. We've got to do both to be successful. Hello. Uh, thank you for the nice talk. I was just curious, you mentioned really briefly that you use DNA sequencing. Just curious, because here in, in San Diego, we have Illumina, and we're doing lots to try to do, understand the genetics of humans. I'm just curious, like, what, type, what are we doing to understand the genetics of corals? And like, one idea I had was maybe if you have a big coral, like it lives in a big area, then it's more diverse. So when something happens, maybe that's the type of coral that can survive and, and repopulate. But if it's smaller, di di the diversity is less. Do you see these kinds of things? And so it's kind of two questions. Yeah, know. yeah. Well, well, first off, in terms of the, the sequencing, there's, there's a whole collection of them, and, and we've, um, we're pushing towards an approach whereby we can be doing uh, comprehensive sampling that gets through all of the holobiont from the animal, the symbiont, and the microbiome, because all of them are containing unique information. We know that there's information in particular gene regions of the animal part. We know that there's a, a different a, a phenotypic capacity for the algal part. And we know that the consortium of uh, the, micro, uh, the microbial consortium can hugely influence the reaction of an organism to its environment. So it's question specific, where we main, but we maintain these samples. They're all hard fought uh, samples. They're all spatially registered because we have them all in these maps. We can find them again on the planet and we sample them through time. Hugely exciting. And as, as data get bigger and bigger, and Illumina is a great partner at Scripps, uh, there's more and more opportunity for asking new questions. Your second question about the big corals versus small corals and the amount of diversity. This is interesting. So some corals do actually serve as mosaics, genetic mosaics. We certainly know that's true for the microbiome because that, that can change at such small spatial scales. We know it's true for the algal symbiont where some of them have different symbiotic types on the outside than the top. For the animal, it's even true that sometimes, like I noted, there could be a mitotic, uh, some type of a change of the DNA of it and it spreads like variegated leaves that you may see, but with some more substantive uh, uh, um, mutations that are carried through multiple polyps. Yes, there's certainly more heterogeneity in them. That, that being said, uh, the amount of variability varies by taxon to taxon. Those big corals that you saw, those, those massive ones that were underneath the shipping channel, tend to be fairly homogeneous in a lot of their um, uh, variability across their, their bodies, where some of the small ones have more variability. And a lot of it's controlled by the animal, uh, how much the animal is controlling the microbiome and how much the animal has that relationship in forcing the symbionts to live and die. It's a fascinating question, and you're asking something spot in the middle of, of where, where we're um, thinking, and I'd love to, we're just all hands on deck. <laughs> we want to take you for a little bit of a tour because I've talked about this 100 Island Challenge, which is a very nice way, and we've, we've looked at some visuals, but we're hoping to take you for a quick little virtual school scuba dive. 
for an experience with our team uh, conducting this 100 Island Challenge work. So we have this opportunity to go to, uh, to get data from a lot of places. As uh, in almost every location, as noted before, we'll, we'll team up with partners locally. Uh, there's a lot of skill and capacity, and we, we assemble our team, maintaining all safety standards that are requisite to the University of California. We get people in the water, and we start uh, uh, assessing the site. We do site-by-site studies. So for each island, we may visit 10, 20, or 30 different locations. Each one, we try to conduct a synoptic collection of work across uh, in about a one-hour episode. It's tough to collect a lot of data in one hour, but that's where you need a good team. We have a series of equipment we have to bring because we're not just collecting this imagery. We're also collecting information about what fish are there. We may be deploying temperature loggers. And we have to be uh, deploying some uh, ground control points, or at least some stakes in the ground, so that we can find this location again later. How do you get time series if you don't come back to the same location? So you'll see that at the beginning of one of these dives, it may look like a bit of a mess. But let's just say it's an orchestrated mess. As time, as time goes on during this dive, uh, we get the teams assembled. Gear gets deployed. A team of two divers will swim off to start assessing how many fish live there, how big are they, what species, so we can have some idea about the intensity of fishing, the growth of fish species, and patterns of biodiversity. At the same time, we have this team looking at the bottom, and all this imagery still takes place with a scuba diver collecting images. Put some, put some equipment on the bottom so you know where you are. Set up a little bit of a map so that people know where to swim. Put out scale bars so we know how big each of these, these images is or how big every coral is. And then start taking photographs. You'll see there in the back we have our one uh, diver carrying a camera. In the, uh, for the camera nerds in the room, we're using uh, DSLR cameras. Uh, one of the reasons that we use these, these larger cameras, great optics, but they also have an important feature on them, an intervalometer. Tough word for me to say most of the time, but it does exactly what you think. It meters intervals. It collects photographs at, at set intervals because we have to take a lot of photographs. To, to collect the imagery from one of these locations, it may, we may collect somewhere around 5,000 photographs. And this is where we get to this process of photogrammetry. We can, take you for, we can take you for a virtual tour of a uh, photogrammetric product or this process that begin of large area imagery that begins with a process called structure for motion. We're trying to collect the same data everywhere. We're trying to get this snapshot and we want to watch what it looks like today and we want to look at what it looks like tomorrow. Photo-based imagery provides us this way to collect this imagery. The basic notion is as clear as the name of structure for motion. We try to gather and estimate the structure of a coral reef based upon the motion of a camera. Because it is an interesting question, how do you generate a three-dimensional model when all you have are a bunch of photographs that are in two dimensions? This is where we can thank all the video game aficionados that are around today. Not that this process wasn't, uh, hadn't been invented decades ago, but this ability to, in very fast 
uh, very efficiently convert two-dimensional images into a three-dimensional model depends upon everything that graphics cards do today. While kids are running around playing virtual uh, hide-and-go-seek, uh, their computer is doing millions or billions of calculations to make the landscape look realistic. Flip that in reverse and ask a computer a tough question. Here are 3,000 photographs. Tell me which ones are related to which ones, like a jigsaw puzzle. Once you know where each photo is relative to one another, you get the pose estimate. The computer now knows that this photo was taken here and that photo was taken there. You can do Pythagorean theorem of shared points about a gazillion times. It's a formal number. One of these point clouds this is a real number, has about a billion points in it. This 3D model is simply a list of a billion points with the color of each point underneath it. This process to do the Pythagorean theorem enough times to estimate where in space every little feature is from this collection of 5,000 photographs takes a lot of computer power. But again, computer gaming has helped us to get that far along. It's amazing how efficient this process is. Uh, in even the worst diving conditions where you come back feeling like you just got your, uh, your lunch handed to you, let's just say, because of high swell or tough current or whatever may be there, we come back and run it through a computer and you come up with this beautiful representation of what you saw. And you think, oh, that's what I was looking at the whole time. I thought I was just about to pass out. <laughs> and it's incredible. We've been working with a team of engineers here at UC San Diego's engineering program uh, with Falco Kuster and Vid Petrovich. We have Scott McElvoy and, and Dominique Rosolo here today who have been helping us on some of these visualization tools. The products that, that generate these 3D point clouds are only as good as our ability to be able to navigate around it. How can we look at a billion points and spin it around, even with a fast computer, unless we warn the computer of how we want to use it? So we've created this, this uh, a workflow whereby we can now study coral reefs without getting wet. We've had students from across the globe participate in programs learning taxonomy and they've never been in the tropics. We've trained students from across the United States during COVID doing a research experience during the summer just to learn about all these reefs based upon shared digital views of the same reef. Students in Guam were talking with students in Puerto Rico about reefs that were in the Indian Ocean. Now that's a geographic uh, a wordle for you if you wanted. But we can do a lot of work with these. You can, of course, interrogate. We can take these, these fun little explorations, but we can also try to find individual features or even take a virtual dive. We can swim along the landscape here and pretend that this is us in the water. We can look for different uh, features, big corals, small corals. We can look for some of those coral juveniles that we may care about. But we can also do some esoteric work. Not esoteric in the sense of uh, it not being important for science, but esoteric in the sense of us visualizing nature in a way that we, didn't, that we don't have the capacity to do when we're in person. Imagine taking a cross-section, just a thin slice of a coral reef and interrogating it. How bumpy is this reef? How many holes are there? Sounds like a, a, a remote question, but if you're a fish, or I'm studying fish biology, I may care very much about how bumpy a reef is. 
It also affects the patterns of flow. And in these nutrient-poor environments, uh, the, how rough the surface is leads to more water exchange, which leads to a faster-growing coral reef. We've got 100,000 million questions that we can address, all with one collection of photographs. It's for this that, that I, I made the leap as an individual. I described this, this uh, kid looking at bugs and breathing smog in Los Angeles. Uh, I also tried to get as far away from computers as I could as a kid. And when I showed my dad my laboratory, he just laughed and said, I remember when you didn't want to click a key. And I said, I know, I know. Now can we go to dinner? Because you've had your comeuppance. We're now working with big data. Thank you. Oh, that's fabulous and so vivid. Thank you so much. Um, in the various adventures you've had around all these reefs, have you examined and followed over time some of the reefs that have been really badly damaged by human activity, for example, through uh, bombing, uh, you know, dynamiting of the reef, and then subsequent storms that have broken the, that have, that have smashed up the, the already cracked and, and disturbed coral substrate? How do they get out of that, or do they? How do they get out of it? That's a great question. Uh, Clint, if you can find um, some access to the, the work in the Maldives, if that's something that's handy. The, the Maldives will give us a nice visual exploration of this. Uh, there is certainly um, a point where reefs can have a couple uh, straws on their back in this proverbial camel. And then they can have one too many straws, and then sometimes they get a, a full truckload of hay dumped on their back. <laughs> it's not easy to come back from that. What you're describing, some of these cases where there, there may be um, uh, hot water events, storm events, sewage, and then uh, uh, dynamite fishing. I mean, it's the perfect storm. Dynamite fishing, for those of you not familiar, it could be dynamite, it can be some different cocktails of chemicals put in a plastic bottle, thrown in the water. We, we throw them in the water because it, it kills the fish. It, ex, it explodes their swim bladders. They then float to the surface. It makes it easier to catch fish. If you blow up a coral reef that has fish, you may get dinner one day, but then the reef is gone and all that structure is gone for dinner the next day. We're just going to take a tour here. Uh, how do we bring these places back? One of the biggest challenges of restoring a heavily damaged reef is making the basic environmental conditions sufficient for growth. When we look at some of these more spectacular coral reefs, the water is clear enough for the corals to see sunlight. The, um, uh, there's not the, the, uh, an excess of nutrients that are linked with sewage that lead to this uh, prodigious overgrowth of seaweed, which then has knock-on uh, consequences for, um, uh, for microbial growth on the corals. And, and you also have a substrate. You have some rocks for corals to live on. One thing you may have noticed, corals don't grow on sand patches. That's where we get seagrasses in the tropics, because you need a rock to hold on to them. When we've gone to places where places have gotten bashed and battered because of uh, uh, explosions, uh, there's oftentimes too, not enough consolidated substrate, meaning there's not enough hard surfaces that don't roll around with every wave to allow a coral to grow and to grow up. Now, what's the, what's the process by which that reef does grow? We've watched on the island of Palmyra areas that were unconsolidated because of just natural big wave events 
consolidate, create rocks that things can grow on. There's a pink alga, it's a whole consortium of multiple species called crustose coralline algae that form this pink crust and they actually cement things back together. When the conditions are good, water conditions are clean enough and there's plenty of light, that pink alga, that coralline algae can reconsolidate the bottom. When it's reconsolidated, that's a great place. Corals see that and say, thank you, pink alga. I would like to live on top of you. And they do. They land there. They sniff them out. Everybody says, pink algae are trying to help corals. I don't think that a pink alga wants a coral sitting on its head. I think corals are just smart enough to sniff them out and to find the right place to live. And so the cycle of reef growth begins. We need to get those enabling conditions that you lock down that substrate for the corals to be able to settle to. There are some more um, engineering-based approaches. Here's a bunch of that coral analogy. Uh, there are engineering solutions that can try to get up and above that, um, that let corals live above the unconsolidated, that rubble or sand, uh, putting out structures that corals live on top of. Once that, if the coral grows fast, it may fall and then create uh, a more branching reef. There are engineering solutions being designed to try to create that. The first and foremost, most important part of any coral restoration effort is make the environment good enough for a coral to be able to live. If it's not, if the environment isn't good, if the water's too uh, dirty, too, uh, too hot, or uh, too uh, murky, you'll never get the corals to come back. Local management is still that first order necessity for us to see any type of coral recovery. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.